Tonight's first reading is from Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 11, which can be found on page 197 of the New Testament section of the Church Bibles. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience, while joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. The second reading is from Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5, which can be found on page 194 of the New Testament section of the Church Bibles. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Emily. Just start a moment of prayer. Lord King Jesus, as we come before your word tonight, I just pray you give us open ears and hearts to hear once more from you. Amen. Um, for those of you who don't know me, Simon very kindly introduced me earlier on. I'm uh, Chris Med, member of the church family here. Um, for some time now, I've been wondering about a very important question that I know plagues a number of, preoccupies a number of baby boomers, right down to relatively late members of Generation X, such as myself. And that is, at what age do you introduce your teenage children to Monty Python's Flying Circus? Too early, and the surreal humour's lost on them, and, and sometimes it's just plain inappropriate. Too late, and they're a bit too sophisticated for it. 
Well, in any case, about a month or so ago, I finally took the plunge, uh, and my daughters and I uh, sat down and watched the quest for the Holy Grail together. Uh, one of the dangers of doing this sort of thing is that your family discover actually you have no original conversation of your own. You just live on a series of quotes and repeat quotes back once and forth uh, to another, a bit like this. How do you know she's a witch? A newt. <laughs> so proud. <laughs> Next slide, please, Brian. Um, for those of you uh, who are a bit unfamiliar with it, who have never seen um, the film, or possibly it's been a while, it was made in 1975 after all, uh, Graham Chapman, who you can see up here on the, the right of the screen, uh, stars as King Arthur. And he's leading his knights to the round table around... Um, uh, around the countryside, looking for the bravest and most noble knights to join him in his quest to seek the Holy Grail. Now, in doing so, he, on, on the way, he stumbles across some peasants who he doesn't realise were actually members of an anarcho-syndicalist commune. Uh, and Arthur orders them to cooperate with him. Order, eh? Comes back the reply. Order, eh? Who does he think he is? Well, I am your king, comes King Arthur's reply. King, eh? Well, I didn't vote for him. Uh, next slide, please. Um, members of the commune, a bit like uh, some of the protesters who fell foul of the law, uh, recently got themselves arrested for protesting at accession proclamations for King Charles III. Those members of the commune objected to that very idea of having a king, having a hereditary monarchy. They thought possibly in a modern day and age, surely we've gone beyond having kings. And the time of kings is now behind us. But as Simon said, today we mark the feast of Christ the King, or to give it its rather magnificent official title, the Solemnity of Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. Uh, next slide, please. So this evening, as we turn to this passage in Colossians here, I want us to consider three things. I want to consider how Jesus is really a king like no other. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And a king we can choose to reign in us now and be subject to now, but also a king whose majesty is in his very nature. And he's one who remains king, whether we, to coin a phrase, whether we vote for him or not. So I want to suggest firstly that Jesus is a king with a kingdom. Secondly, that he's a king like no other. And thirdly, that he is the universal king. Firstly then, uh, he's a king with a kingdom. In the modern West, I think we, we like to think that we are really free. And a poll of uh, modern Americans, liberty was set as the highest virtue of all. Freedom, land of the free, I suppose. We're free to choose our own destiny. We're subject to no one, subject to nothing, and beholden to ourselves alone. We can persuade ourselves that we can enjoy liberty on all fronts. I wonder if people perhaps living in other parts of the world recognise better than us that that isn't really the case. Places where the freedom to act, perhaps even to think as we choose, is, is seriously curtailed 
it doesn't matter if you agree with the authorities or not, you're still under their authority. Next slide, please. Wherever we live in the world, there are other authorities to which we're subject. If we look down to verses 13 and 14 in in the passage from uh, Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this, he's rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Colossian believers and we here today have been rescued from an oppressive regime. The power that is the dominion of darkness and God has instead transferred us from that into the kingdom of his son. No longer do we live in a kingdom of darkness. No longer are we its subjects. Instead, we've been rescued into Jesus' kingdom under King Jesus. On the day of his crucifixion, Jesus was there. He'd been arrested and he was brought before Pilate. And Pilate's questioning him. Are you the king of the Jews, he asks him. And Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. And it makes us stop and think. All those parables, all those parables that Jesus is asking questions, he says, what's the kingdom of God like? What parable should we use to describe it? Jesus is referring to his own kingdom in there. My kingdom is not of this world. What is my kingdom like? I'll tell you if you listen. Jesus described his own kingdom, and it's his kingdom to which we've been transferred. And if we trust and believe in him... Our citizenship is now not primarily British or Irish or French or of any other earthly kingdom which will fade away, but we're now citizens of his kingdom and he's now our king. The idea of the sort of feast of Christ, the king, it's something I remember from a child. In fact, I remember this as well as Stir Up Sunday. Has anyone made a Christmas pudding today? Oh, we were too busy, I'm afraid. We probably just bought one at Tesco's. But stir up there for yourself. So stir up something. You can make some Christmas pudding. You've got time to get home from church if you haven't done it yet. Um, but this Feast of Christ the King, so it's the last Sunday of the church year now. In fact, it's a really recent, um, I was going to say invention. This is invented, really. A, a recent phenomenon. In fact, it's 100 years ago this year that then, the then pontiff, it was Pope Pius XI, he wrote down this idea of a feast to celebrate the the kingship of Christ. Because the First World War had ended, but peace hadn't come. And Pius noted that it was only under the ultimate kingship of Christ, not the nationalism that was tearing Europe and the rest of the world apart, it was only under Christ's kingship, that is the Prince of Peace, that we would know peace and that peace would come. Secondly then, Christ is a king like no other. I make no apology for the fact that I did ask someone, I said, can I, we've had one really amazing passage from Colossians 1, can I have a second purple passage and have Philippians 2 as well? Um, and I did say to someone as well before we started this evening, I thought, can anything I say add anything to just listening to these um, passages? We'll just read them out twice, and we'll sit and think about it for a bit and that's probably good enough. As my mother-in-law encouragingly said to me, I said, oh, I'm I'm speaking on this. And she said, oh, well, don't muck it up then. (laughs) 
But just in case we have anything, let's have a little look at it together. Look with me now at verses 15 to 20. I'll read them out again because it's worth hearing again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Now, you'll probably agree a full treatment of everything there would probably take quite a long time, and I don't think I'll have your attention for that long. Um, But I would encourage you perhaps just to read this passage again tomorrow, and maybe the day after as well, and just let it sink into you a bit. But it picks up on, on one of the great difficulties as I see for those looking into the Christian faith or maybe those who are perhaps struggling in their faith the intangibility of the creator compared to the immediacy of the creation can be a real challenge I can see and touch the things around me where is God even the disciples seem to have this problem themselves and they struggle with it Confused by what Jesus was saying to them just before his crucifixion. He was confused about, about him talking about his imminent departure. Philip pleads with him and says, and this is the start of uh, the chapter 14 in John's Gospel. He says, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Just, if you just show us God, if we can just see him, that'll be enough. And Jesus replies to him and says, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? And back in that passage in Colossians, Paul echoes that again. He's the image, that which can be seen of the invisible God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If we want to know what the Father looks like, when we look at his Son, the creator and sustainer of the universe took on our own frail flesh. As the song, which I'm very pleased to see we're seeing later on this evening, says, from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. I remember at school um, being introduced to the concept of the blind men and the elephants. Some of you may know this. Um, we can have the next picture. Thank you. And the idea of this, if you've not seen it before, here's a a sort of cartoon version. The idea is is it proposes a way of thinking about the very different ways that various faiths perceive and describe God. Now, all these people are touching the elephant and feeling the same creature, but one has got hold of the tusk and another one's got the trunk and another one's got the tail and one of them's feeling along the flank of the elephant and so on. But as they're blind their experiences are all markedly different. And is it any wonder then that the different cultures and traditions describe the divine so differently? Now, I actually think that this, as a metaphor, 
does actually have, probably have some merit and it might encourage us a little humility as Jesus' disciples. But this description of Jesus we have here in Colossians, it's one which gives sight to the blind. When we see and know and pray to Jesus, we see and know and have access to God himself. We see the whole elephant in totality. If it's not too bad a pun, we see the elephant in the theological room, as it were. And not only is Jesus the image of the invisible God, not only the one by whom and for whom, <coughs> and sorry, by whom and for whom all things were made, but he's also the means by which we're reconciled back to the divine through the cross. Lastly, then, Jesus is the universal king. So I go back again to that idea, that commune in Monty Python, or the streets of Oxford earlier this year, that of the king that no one voted for. Not my king, the posters declared. Now, if you felt strongly enough about this, um, you could always emigrate somewhere where the means of selecting the largely symbolic head of state uh, was more to your liking. Or possibly even you could ferment a revolution. By the way, neither of these, for Mark never asked me to speak again. This isn't personal advice to him. The kingdoms and empires and people's republics, free states and fiefdoms will rise and then all fall and all of them will fade away. None of them are eternal. None is universal. The Ming dynasty has as no more authority over me than King Charles III has over ancient Sparta. But there is one king overall, once and for all, over all creation. A last slide, please, ma'am. If you flick back one book in your Bibles to Philippians, Paul offers another description of Jesus and his redeeming work. And because of this work, because of his obedience to the cross and the redemption it's brought, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that is, even those who've already died, for all time, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As we heard already, today is the last Sunday of the church year. Advent starts next week. And it's a season, Advent, when we not only recall and contemplate the amazing mystery of the Incarnation, whereby Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. But it's also when we eagerly look forward to the coming again of the King of Kings, the unparalleled, universal King Jesus. So as we embark on Advent, then, I perhaps suggest let this be a season when we once more live urgent and fulfilling lives as citizens of his present and coming kingdom. Amen.